Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to episode 15 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, in an extra special episode 15, we're taking a temporary detour off the course of the cross-time caper to cover a very important special issue, none other than Mojo Mayhem. Just in case you don't recall, Mojo Mayhem involves the super alien, super spineless reality TV super mogul Mojo and cat slapping and a royal wedding involving a princess who can't stop thinking about Nightcrawler and Sugar, Wolvie, Lil Dazzler, Lil Havoc, Shower, Lil Longshot, Colossus, and Psychild. That's right, the X-Babies are here to mess up your shit and steal your heart. Mojo Mayhem was originally published in December 1989 in and around the release of Excalibur number 13, though it's set prior to the cross-time caper. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Art Adams on pencils, Terry Austin and Bob Wyasek on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski and Jade Modet on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. What's going on? They're having a wizard's duel. What's that mean? Oh, it's a battle of wits. The players change themselves to different things in an attempt to uh, to destroy one another. De- de- destroy? Well, just watch, boy. Just watch. You'll get the idea. We've got an absolutely perfect scholar with us today to help us parse all the self-reflexive mayhem of this issue's bite-sized, big-impact guest stars, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, some quick intros to the regulars. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about issues of representation in comics, plying my talents on websites and books, academic journals and university classrooms, and on another podcast, which I co-host with a post of this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I talk about sex and gender and monsters and sex and gendered and sexually gendered monsters monsters and nightcrawler and occasionally other things like basketball and pro wrestling i'm kurt wagner's still unofficial pr manager and i have mixed feelings about the ex-babies but i'm here to be sold on them and know this is the perfect crew to do it mav if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself i am the very model of a maverick major domo oh gosh oh golly vox podcast and some other shows the idea of hating ex-babies delightful seems impossible especially for anna who hates who loves everything it seems implausible but for now this is enough because this is getting way too long but really not liking ex-babies Babies, Anna's just wrong, and that seemed like such a better idea when I wrote that this morning. <laughs> I'm impressed. How, I'm very impressed. How do you not like X Babies? This is the, the, the I mean, like, like I read the show notes, our our, our behind the scenes prepared notes for this, and I'm just like, what's wrong with her? I don't want to do the show with her anymore. How are we even friends, Anna? <laughs> My goodness, the, uh. the fire is happening already. Well, we're going to get to it, but but first we got to get through these. So yeah, I like these. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. 
Andrew, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am on faculty at St. Jerome's University in the English department. Um, and I am the project lead for the Claremont Run, uh, which is a big Chris Claremont research thing with um, a social media wing. Uh, I am also a massive defender of Mojo Mayhem in particular. <laughs> and I am delighted to hear that Mav's already on my team. And yeah, depending on how it goes with Anna, because I, I know we might have to sell her on this. This could be like our last episode. because. Yeah, this is it. I mean, <laughs> this is the hill I will die on. I, I, I love this thing. I, I think it's Oh amazing. my God. Oh my God. We're keeping the podcast going at least until the warlord issue. So like, I mean, I can promise several more episodes at least. My goodness. Okay. Anyway, we are joined, as I mentioned, by a truly wonderful guest who I was surprised and delighted said yes to me, basically cold calling her to ask if she'd be interested in reading a very weird old X-Men comic and chatting with us about it. <laughs> The podcast is thrilled to welcome Dr. Gwen Tarbox. Welcome, Gwen. Well, hi there. How's everyone? Well, I can tell how everyone is. <laughs> you're, you're giddy with excitement over this issue, so... Yeah. Uh, they yeah. are, indeed. So I'll tell our listeners a little bit about Gwen. Dr. Gwen Tarbox is a professor in the Department of English at Western Michigan University, where she teaches comic studies, children's and YA literature, and American popular culture. Her monograph, Children's and YA Comics, was released by Bloomsbury in 2020, and she has co-edited with Dr. Michelle Ann Abate, Graphic Novels for Children and Young Adults, a collection of critical essays. It's a wonderful collection. Currently, Dr. Tarbox is writing a monograph entitled The Awkward Spectacle, Coming of Age in Contemporary Middle grade comics which sounds completely awesome now gwen i know you know your comics everyone also now knows that based on that fabulous bio and i know you've written about some superhero fare in your research on children's comics but is this your first time encountering this series that is excalibur sadly yes and i'm really embarrassed because i lived in england during the 1980s but <laughs> I was really involved with like new wave music and everything and not so much comics at that time, but Fair it enough. was a lot of fun to read it. So what's your kind of background in, in sort of incorporating some superhero stuff into your work? Like, are you familiar with kind of the wider X-Men franchise at all? Yeah, it debuted the year I was born. So you could say that I've kind of known about it for my, almost my entire life. And as a kid, I liked it because the school story kind of got a more contemporary refresh and I, I liked that a lot. But as far as my scholarship is concerned, you can't really write about children's comics and not write about superheroes. And so in my book, I definitely treat um, sort of the movement from comic strips to comic books, and then sort of the movement into graphic novels in the 21st century. So it's not a huge section of my work, but it definitely is there. Yeah, well, I'll be very interested in hearing kind of your thoughts about how to situate this in a history or a discourse of children's comics, which is one of the things that I really wanted to have you on to do. Um, I want to talk about your first impressions of Excalibur, but maybe we'll actually get back to that after we do the intro to the issue, because I just want to know basically whether this comic made any sense to you at all. <laughs> but um, but maybe we'll come back to that. And I want to talk a little bit about the history of children's comics and sort of the academic study of children's comics as well. But let's do our intro and we'll, we'll come back to it in a moment. I know many people probably have possibly a vague memory of this very zany comic. So we'll catch you all up with that plot summary. Mojo Mayhem opens 
happens appropriately enough in the Mojoverse, where the ex-babies and Ricochet Rita are running from Mojo's trademark police, despite Wolvie's protestations. They barricade themselves in the House of Stan and Jack while the trademark police open fire. There's an explosion and the ex-babies disappear. They've been transported to Earth-616, in other words, the prime Marvel reality. Desperate to retrieve the ex-babies, his raiding starlings, Mojo enlists the help of a skull-faced guy called the Agent. From there, we check in with Kitty Pride on a train from Edinburgh to London, reflecting on recent events. Back at the lighthouse, she got fed up working on repairs and struggling with Widget while missing Ileana, so Kurt, assuring Brian that Kitty's the responsible type, urged her to take the weekend off to see her favorite band, Cat Slapping. She does and has a great time even meeting the band backstage, but she's still melancholy, reflecting on her unpredictable phasing powers and the death of the X-Men. Finally, she turns out the light in her train cabin, but she hears whispers in the dark. Suddenly, a light flares. It's Lil Dazzler and the X-Babies. Kitty freaks out and faces out of the train, landing in a river. The X-Babies find her and explain their situation, that they've lost their guardian, Ricochet Rita, and need to get her back. A road trip ensues in which Kitty tries to contact Excalibur. The phone lines are down, and they've chased by the agent who impersonates various people to try and get the X-Babies to sign various contracts. Each time the agent convinces one of the X-Babies to sign, they disappear, absorbed into the agent. Along the way, a police car is stolen, which is then switched for a van previously occupied by Chris Claremont and other comics creators. Eventually, the action converges at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, where Judith Razendil, Queen of Ruritania, is getting married. When the priest asks if there are any objections, Kitty phases through the floor with a giant sign asking for Excalibur's help. The priest becomes the agent, and there's a hijinks-filled fight, which results in a phoenix unmasking the agent as Ricochet Rita, warped by Mojo to serve him. The ex-babies offer to go back to Mojo World in exchange for Rita's freedom. Mojo agrees, but as the ex-babies step through the portal to Mojo World, Rita jumps in after them. It seems for a moment that all was for naught until a Mojoverse coda. Because the ex-babies came of their own free will rather than signing a contract, they're able to demand better working conditions and perks. A frowning Mojo realizes he may have made a grave error. So... Getting back to those first impressions, and we'll kick it to you first, Gwen. As a newcomer to the world of Excalibur, but not a newcomer to the world of X-Men, and certainly not a newcomer to the world of comics, did this comic make any sense to you at all? Okay, it did. Um, good, but, good. <laughs> but honestly, I just have to tell you that like your summarizing skills are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> because if, if someone listening to this has not yet looked at this comic, and then like... <laughs> Reads it, they're going to be like, wow, Anna, you know what you're doing. Um, I'll tell you what I enjoyed the most. Um, I enjoyed the Kitty Pride scenes because yeah. she is by far my favorite character. And I I was about this age at this time, and I was a groupie of many, many bands in London. And so this is like pretty much my adolescence right here on this page. It's way cool. But I'll tell you what I do like. There's an incredible sense of humor in this entire issue. There's self-reflexive and ways that are amazing, not just about X-Men, but about the world of, even if you want to think about it, like this was the height of child actors and these kids like basically negotiating for their, the terms of their service was just hysterical. So yeah, I, 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 it took me a minute. I'll admit there was some culture shock, but I warmed up very quickly and, and really enjoyed reading it. Aww, I love that personal connection to Kitty in this time and place. That's amazing. <laughs> and yeah, that comment about child actors is so intriguing yeah I hadn't even thought about reading that context into it because I was thinking mostly of sort of the comics-based self-reflexivity but there is that larger cultural self-reflexivity as well I think you're absolutely right well can we talk a little bit about where we might situate this sort of in some of the work that you do Gwen in children's comics I'm specifically
specifically wondering, does this relate to other things that you've studied sort of in the history of children's comics? Does this relate to sort of this moment of comics publishing? Did you have any thoughts about how we might situate this comic there? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we do when we talk about children's literature and children's culture is we think about intended audience. And the intended audience of this comic isn't necessarily children. Yeah. And so that means that we're sort of dealing with a situation where we're looking at children as portrayed by adults, writing for adults. And so this comic is really different than, say, something like Scooby-Doo that would have been written at the same time, but was intended for child readers. And as a result, the children themselves come off a little bit differently. They're much more like miniature adults, in my view, where they have sort of a, a lot of understanding of the world and how it operates. And so the question isn't sort of how do these naive children get you know, from point A to point B? Rather, it's these children are causing a heck of a lot of mayhem. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I actually, if I had been a kid at this point, I would have loved this comic, but, and I, but I always read up anyway. And I think I would have related to a lot of what was going on in it and found it really funny. But as far as children's comics at this time, this is very different. The way that the kids have a lot of volition and also are, are clearly being used for a larger narrative purpose. That's really the biggest difference. There's not a lot of morality in this comic when it comes to children. <laughs> that's actually a fresh breath of breath of fresh air, I should say. Well, where does this then kind of fit in the history of, well, maybe I should ask this a different way. I mean, when you say that you study children's comics, does that mean comics about children or does that mean comics starring children? Because you're emphasizing the distinction right. there. Right. You know, one of the things that we think about in the field of children's comics is what do we mean by that term? And what I do is I'm looking at comics that are, are written for a child audience. And in children's literature in general, what we're always dealing with there are adults writing for children and those adult agendas enter into the text, right? Mm -hmm. So there's almost always some didacticism. It's just as you move into the 21st century, that didacticism becomes hidden, right? So for instance, a lot of the sort of authorial intent starts to be voiced by children themselves in the first person. This is a trend that we see in children in text-only children's literature in the 1970s with this huge spate of, of authors writing for children and using the first person in very convincing dialogue. So think of Judy Bloom, for instance. Yeah. Um, it's sort of the quintessential example of a 1970s author who was so convincing, for instance, and in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, that I told my mother I wanted to write to Margaret. Oh. And my mother was like, it was so cute because my mom was like, Gwen, look at the lady on the back of the book. Look at like it's <laughs> She's Judy Bloom is an author. And I was like, no, Margaret is real, you know? And so it's that kind of engaging narration is what we call it in the field that allowed someone like Judy Bloom to put forward a lot of really interesting ideas in her texts about how children should behave and what was and what was not appropriate, but in such a way it wasn't like some adult telling them what to do. And so to me, that's sort of when I talk about this comic, which has children in it, but wasn't written for children, well, that didactic imperative disappears. And so you can now look at these children and ask a different set of questions like, what is the narrative purpose of including these mini-me's? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and, and you guys would probably be much better placed to talk about that because you're experts in Excalibur as to, and X-Men as to what they're doing here, but they're not children in the same sense as if this were being written specifically for young kids, if that makes sense. And it's not that we're not interested in the depiction of children in adult text, but we just ask different questions. No, that's completely fair. I mean, what's particularly vibrant to you about, because you obviously, you study text-based children and YA literature as well. What's particularly interesting to you about children's comics? Like what's particularly interesting about sort of the opportunities to represent subjectivity in this medium that particularly attracts you to those sets of questions that you're talking about? Right. Well, first of all, there are some technical things about comics that fascinate me. First of all, like just figuring out point of view and the way that that's complicated in a visual narrative. You know, very few comics creators writing for children necessarily show you the world through a child child's eyes. And when that does happen, it's usually only for a few moments, but it just kind of disrupts that engaging narration because you're constantly looking at the character from sort of a a distance. And I like that fact. I think it actually can encourage kids to sort of think about the way that the text is put together in different ways than with a text-only narrative. And I'm also interested in something that's really key to contemporary children's literature, which is this idea that the, the lessons, if you will, of the text are often conveyed silently in comics in ways that it's difficult to do in text-only narratives. And an example that I give in my book is there's a, um, a really wonderful Portland-based comics creator called Barry Deutsch. And he started off as a political cartoonist, but then started to write middle-grade novels. And um, he's written what's called the Hereville series, which is about a young um, Jewish Orthodox girl growing up in Iowa who wants to fight dragons. I think y'all would really like this comic, actually. It's beautifully done. But one of the things that he's trying to demonstrate in the comic is that there's a tradition in Jewish families of training children to become good at argumentation by challenging their assumptions and asking them to think about issues from a variety of perspectives. And in the first volume of Hereville, um, the the hero heroine called Mirka is arguing with her stepmother. And there's this wonderful page where in the center panel, you have the stepmother who's called Fruma, who's making all of these objections to, make, to um, Mirka's argument that she wants to go and kill dragons, right? And there's this cascade of speech balloons or word balloons around her head. And on the periphery of the page, there's Mirka making all of her objections. Well, like about 200 pages later... <laughs> When Mirka is engaged in a battle with a troll, she ends up arguing with the troll in a way that saves her life. And the exact same set of panels and arrangement of word balloons is occurring in that particular scene. And never once in the book does Mirka ever say, oh, thank you, Fruma, for helping me to understand the importance of argument or anything. It's just that visually you can see that Mirka has picked this up and utilized it. And it's that kind of silent sort of messaging that I find so intriguing in children's texts where the impulse in in really poorly done children's texts is to like have an adult (laughs) give advice and have the kids say thank you wise adult you know and so I think what comics allow creators to do is to make a lot of that happen silently so there's a lot going on formally in children's comics that I like to explore. Yeah and I mean reading your work on children's comics that I've read before I was very sort of moved by your argument that you know as you've been talking about in the history of children's literature it's about sort of finding the agency 
of that child voice, right? And if we're thinking about a medium with the sort of inherent subjectiveness and participatoriness and like almost inherent self-reflexivity of comics, which are some of the things that you're talking about, right? When you're talking about the formal production of the thing is evident just as a matter of course, because that's how comics work. And you can have connections suggested through formal gestures rather than just told to you. And like the agency that that allows a reader to have is a way that, you know, you can insert that child agency into a text even when it's written by adults. And I love that as an idea for how children's literature can be particularly vibrant in this form. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's bring Andrew and Mav into this conversation with some first impressions, because you both went in hard with how much you love this text. Are some of these things that Gwen's bringing up about, well, I I almost want to ask that question about like, how do we know that this isn't a text for children, which might seem obvious because we just know what the audience was for this historically. But I mean, what signs do we have in this text that it isn't for children? Like, why are we so safe in making that assumption? I think it's important to look at this in the context in which it was in which it was released. I, I think the stuff Gwen's saying is very important about the distinguishing between texts that are of children and texts for children and some that sort of, you know, walk that line in between. I'm not a child per se when this comes out, right? I'm, you know, I'm older. I'm not, I'm not an adult, but I'm like 15, 16 years old. So, but I think it's important to look at this in like the cultural context of what was coming out in, you know, in pop culture when this happened, right? So this is like 1989. It might've been 1990 by the time it was actually on shelves. And we are in a world where pop culture properties just have baby versions. Mm -hmm. And starting yeah. with starting with Muppet Babies, which is delightful. Great. And again, if, if, if Anna doesn't like Muppet Babies, this show really is over. Okay, <laughs> this, is, this is it. I have but, I have uh, fond memories of Muppet Babies. Don't okay, worry. wonderful. So along the tradition of Muppet Babies and much lesser other similar shows, Pump Name Scooby Doo, Flintstone Kids, people are just copying this. Oh, we're going to do a baby version of you know because Muppet Babies was so wonderful. And X Babies is the one that works for me because. It's it's not a kid's show because it is more, particularly with Mojo Mayhem, but even with their earlier appearance and their later appearances, X-Babies isn't, it's not that didactic lesson. It's commenting on the cultural moment of the cynicism, especially with Mojo. It's the cynicism of what makes a world where, oh, well, for a blatant cash grab, we're going to make baby versions of our other property, which is exactly what Mojo does in this book. So it is so metatextually aware that it is, you know, there's a post-modernity to it in a non-cynical sense that since I didn't know any of these words, but yet, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was not an academic yet. I was, I was, I was an actual teenager, but it appealed to me because it was doing something that I was enjoying. It was allowing me to think about these sort of things and still enjoy it. It, it is still quirky and fun. And you can see that, you know, little Daz doesn't know, doesn't know why, but she is still embodying where grown up Dazzler was in the comics at this time. Rogue is still where grown up Rogue was. If you take in, their earlier appearances where it's a slightly different team where you know there is a baby kitty and she's younger so she wets her pants and like just looking at all these all these little connections that happen between the x-babies and where the actual x-men series are is at that time it's always weird talking you know podcast time travel talking about something a text we are reading now that was produced then but um looking where those things are and how they're coming together was natural and fun for me even then without the tools that I have to do it now. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I like what you're bringing up about the lack of cynicism, because I think that's probably going to be a major part of the charm that you're all finding in this comic. And like, to be clear, I don't hate this comic. I really, really don't. (laughs) I would say that I appreciate it more since rereading it, knowing that Andrew loved it so much and kind of giving it a little bit more benefit of the doubt. But Andrew, I'll let you do your first impression bit. What's important about this comic? Why do you love it so much? Uh, Well, just to follow up on what Mav was saying. I think that the the children's literature aspect of this is something of a Trojan horse. I, I think it's it's meant to disarm us because I do think this is a story about grief. Um, but at the same time, again, coming back to what Mav was saying, because Mav said everything I was going to say, but in a better way, um, it's participating in the same genre that it's critiquing. And what I mean by that is like all the best satire, like, like Watchmen is saying superheroes have these limitations, but it's also a really good superhero story. And I do think that in that the middle section, the ex-babies are genuinely delightful. Uh, so it, it's sort of critiquing and participating in a way that I really like. I think that's the best kind of satire. And I think it sets up this this story of grief. Um, to that end, um, I'm just going to read what I, I posted on the Claremont run because it's going to be more succinct and faster. Um, on its surface, Mojo Mayhem is a silly romp with the obnoxiously cute ex-babies, but that belies a melancholy core to the story, which explores concepts of depression, survivor's guilt, and a deeply resonant, elaborate fantasy of coming to terms with the ones we've lost. Oddly enough, like King Lear before it, Mojo Mayhem can be seen as a story of absolution, a narrative crafted around a protagonist's pursuit of release from overwhelming senses of guilt and shame with Kitty Pride cast in the Lear role. The story offers resolution on an ongoing character arc surrounding Kitty's grief and survivor's guilt over what she believes is the death of the X-Men in Fall of the Mutants and Ilyana in Inferno. Kitty is depressed, but distracting herself with Excalibur. The tension of confined living brings some emotions to the surface, however, and Kitty needs some time alone, which ultimately leads to her acknowledging and reflecting upon her feelings in a way that she has up to this point largely avoided. Coincidentally, Kitty's inability to control her phasing power in the issue forms an apt metaphor for her depression. The idea of drifting off and being unable to stay grounded and focused in the moment is relatable for many people suffering from depression. Relatedly, people who have suffered through the loss of a loved one will often become fixated on fantasies of second chances in which they are able to act in such a way as to prevent the tragedy from occurring. Against all odds, this is what Kitty gets with the X-Babies. Normally the junior X-Man, Kitty instantly becomes the adult in the room with the X-Babies, offering her agency and responsibility in a way that she never really had with the actual team, and placing her in the savior position by default, an obligation she longs for. The greatest fantasy moment for Kitty's survivor's guilt emerges from the resolution. The agent lays claim to the X-Babies through contracts, establishing a deathly permanency. But Kitty uses her powers to phase the signatures off the paper, reversing the irreversible. On a broader scale, she gets to be with the X-Men again, gets to say goodbye, and even gets to stand witness to a heroic self-sacrifice that is parallel to the one Kitty missed in Eagle Plaza. It's everything that Kitty desperately wants and helps her to move forward. And I will be quiet now. Oh, Andrew, that's (laughs) That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, Jinx, that's so beautiful. I'm like, geez, we should just end the thing now. How could we add anything better to that? Thanks for joining us, folks. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, maybe in light of that and some of the questions that we've been talking about sort of in children and agency and sort of Kitty being in this in-between space as the teenager character, I mean, maybe I'll go back to you, Gwen, and talk a little bit about, because you said also that you have a particular affection for Kitty as a 
character. How do you see her kind of agency exercised in this text? Like if we're going to be asking those questions that you mentioned about this text about is this sort of adults imprinting onto children or is this like adding sort of a sense of agency to a youthful character, if not a child character in this case, how do you read Kitty's agency in this comic? Is she sort of a convincing, complex protagonist? I mean, I think we're going to say yes, but in what senses is she those <laughs> things? And in what and in what sense did kind of her journey particularly resonate with you or in general in this comic? Yeah, I mean, if I can riff off something that Andrew said, in some ways, she's the still point in this comic, mm. which otherwise is totally chaotic. And so right. when you asked me how I liked it, you know, I would when I got about five pages in, I was like, good God, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to keep going, you know, but then when I got to, <laughs> to the part where, where Kitty is talking about needing to get away and knowing that she that she needs that for herself and advocates for herself, actually, even in 1989, that is a pretty amazing, um, you know, statement for a teenage girl to be making in popular culture. And when she she does that, and you see her like really reflecting on why she needed to get away and what it did for her. I think that that is probably one of the more liberatory moments I've seen in teen culture in the 1980s. So, you know, I actually was was deeply impressed by that. And then later I noticed that when she's being very defensive of the um, little ex-babies and they're sort of like they're a pain, but they're my pain, you know, um, mm -hmm. is, is really sweet too. And I mean, I guess you could look at it in traditional coded terms of, oh, that's, you know, the proto-maternal instincts, but really I didn't see it that way. I think that the text argues convincingly for her, um, her empathy for others, um, which I really don't like to see being gendered. You know what I mean? Yeah. I see it just as an empathy, a general empathy in this text that she has for others and also the way that she's drawn in those middle segments emphasizes I think her youth in some really important ways she's shown to be extremely vulnerable and so I found it to be really powerful I hope that kind of gets at it but I, I think that that her agency is different if you think about other young women who are portrayed in popular culture I mean even the John Hughes movies um, it's very rare that a young character just says nope I've had it put a fork in me I'm done goodbye <laughs> going you know I'm going to go do the things I want to do and I'm going to think the things I want to think. And I thought it was very convincing and not in a patronizing way at all. We were just talking about with Dr. Margaret Galvin, the episode before this one about connections between Kitty and John Hughes movies and that right. 80s and early 90s context. So that's an excellent callback. Um, other thoughts about Kitty in this text? I'm sure Andrew is going to have thoughts, but I'm sure you will as well, Mav. This is one where, you know, the cover says Excalibur. I mean, it's a, it's a special edition, much like yeah. the first one. But this is not an Excalibur yeah. comic. It's a, it's a, it's a Kitty yeah. solo story. Yeah. That this happens is a Kitty Pride story. And, you know, the other Excalibur members are on like four pages. It's fine. But I think the things that Gwen's talking about right now, the, the John Hughes-esque of it, is very much set up by the fact that unlike other teenagers outside of Disney things where everybody's parents dead, but, uh, but unlike other teenagers of the day, Kitty is not a regular teen, not because of her superpowers, but because she has, throughout her narrative existence, mostly existed without her parents, right? Her parents are alive at this point. 
point in the comics, but she's introduced and then shipped off to boarding school. And then when everybody at the, at the boarding school dies, for some reason, she doesn't go back home. She just goes and hangs out with, you know, her professor's girlfriend in London. It, like there's a, like there's there's like there's a lot of weirdness, but she ends up in this space where she is a child technically that people treat as an adult and she's earned it and she's earned it with the readers. And so you end up with a place where because Kurt thinks of her as an adult, you know, and he gives her, you know, he he steps in and says, Brian, leave her, you know, leave her the F alone. I'm doing, <laughs> you know, like she he and she hears him, but he gives her the agency. He says, look, let her do her thing. She's in a mood. Let her have her weekend and we'll all be better. And he lets her go away. That's Kurt showing his friendship and showing, showing his respect for Kitty as an individual. But Kitty lives in a world where she can just at 15 or however old she is, she can just decide to up and go to follow her favorite band 300 miles away. You know, they say it's not close and they say it's not the first time. She can just do this sort of thing. She doesn't ask anybody. She makes this decision. So I think there's something appealing to a young reader, a youth reader, if not a child reader, you know, about the nature of grown upness that Kitty has aside from being a superhero. The adults in her life, the remaining adults in her life, other than Brian, who's a jerk, which we've talked about, <laughs> but, there, but the adults in her life respect her individuality and respect her agency. So that allows her to, when she has trouble, when she's when she's trying to you know protect the ex-babies and she's saying, I'm not prepared for all of this. I need Excalibur's help. You know, it, it doesn't make her seem like she's running away asking for help from grownups because, because they respect her. It makes her seem like she's looking for her help from her team rather than her grownups. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, obviously, say I love that moment with Kurt and Kitty so much I love the extra thing of her hearing him say the explanation to Brian and commenting on it it's so good yeah Andrew go ahead oh no I I completely agree with what Matt was saying um yeah I really like the the depiction of Kurt's emotional intelligence I think that's important in contrast to Brian's um and I really like what Gwen was saying about um um, Kitty kind of being this this calm within this very chaotic issue because I do think like when you're dealing with big emotions as children's literature often does I think it's good to be really counterbalanced very effectively and having kitty be sort of um this this very rational um intelligent character encountering the ridiculous uh, and then slowly but surely modeling our progressive acceptance of the silliness to the point where by the end of this text she's enthusiastic and she's all in and she's she's part of this ex-baby's world i think that's really important uh, again in terms of distinguishing this from like a children's literature alone perspective well i was just gonna say one other thing about this as someone who was a young person at this time as well um the way that the band that she goes to see, the fact that they're women, the fact that they embrace her and there's sort of like this this definite moment of understanding is really important because if you were a young woman in the, from the late 70s and to the well into the 1980s who liked music and who followed bands and did that sort of thing, there was a real derisory way you were treated by most adults mm. as being, you know, frivolous and silly and an airhead and all of that. And actually, most of us who were way into music to that extent weren't frivolous people. And we really were (laughs) interested in culture and ideas that were being expressed by some of the more underground bands that we were going to. And I, I remember really being frustrated at that point. So I have to say that, you know, this text has a really weird dual address thing going on. And, you know, any young men or women reading this text are getting an interesting dose of sort of taking young women seriously. And and I 
think that that would have been almost revolutionary at this time. I, like I said, I wish I had, wish I had had the, the wherewithal to go and pick this up when I was at this age. <laughs> By this point, I was a bit older and I was actually starting grad school. But my point is that like, <laughs> like if you go back about five or six years towards the, you know, the early to mid eighties, this was kind of my world. And it's interesting to, to sort of see it treated respectfully. And it's like, I mean, yeah, it's very affecting to me to see like female fandom treated respectfully, right? Because I mean, that's often such a central point of denigrating women's experience, but also such a central point of women expressing their agency, you know, going all the way back to something like Beatlemania or Elvis fandom or any of these things, right? So it is a really important moment. And I agree. I mean, I'm interested in that question of vulnerability that Gwen brought up as well, because we have another scene of Kitty in her underpants here. And we've talked a couple of times on the podcast about scenes of her she's so for Gwen she's been naked in front of her team uh, twice in this comic already really um, okay yes, uh, in scenes that sort of play with kind of erotic fantasy in terms of a multi-gayness of like you know right. the fantasy of exhibitionism and obviously she's becoming a spectacle for the reader as well and we talked about the complications of that so I was interested in how this scene kind of read within the history of that but like what did we make of kind of this scene and I've got my take on it but I'm sort of curious curious about did we see this kind of playing with that exhibitionism and that problematic but potentially empowering dual gaze or were we a little bit more okay with this scene than some of the other ones I was curious about our reactions curious about yours oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, one, one, one of the weird ones were well okay I'll go first just so you don't have to because I that way I can ask my question but for me this one's different than the most i mean okay so anybody who listens to our show knows i i adore alan davis right like we he's our regular artist and i love his work and i am i don't want to say apologetic i am understanding of the sexualized nature of what he does with particularly when he's trying to do it appropriately with kitty this is different for me because this is art adams art adams clearly is capable of sexualizing a teenage girl in his artwork see anytime he has ever drawn Ileana and that's that's what he does kitty doesn't come across that way for me here um she comes across as i mean yes there's a sexualized nature of it she's still a half naked young girl and I, I get that but he's treating her differently than he treats Ileana in Asgardian Wars or other you know Adams is a cheesecake artist that's what he yeah, is yeah he really is and he and and I you know I like his work but anything from from X-Men to Monkey Men and O'Brien that's what Art Adams does but here he is treating her awkwardly and embarrassedly in a reasonable way of yes of course she was sleeping and you know she was trying to go to sleep and then she had an accident and now she's outdoors and it's not played for you know she's not arching her back yeah you know saying come hither which is how he normally would draw this so there's restraint for me that i'm wondering if that's what you see or if you or does it I mean, you know, i'm also a boy right so does it still come across as oh look girl in her underpants i just don't know. to add to that quickly i point out for my money it's not a narrative contrivance either like i think it adds something that she's vulnerable outside of this train that's kind of a panic situation and i really like the setup that she has pieces of um all of her former teammates uniforms coming together on her mm -hmm. i think that's a nice symbolic touch well yeah i mean one of the things that we always have to look to like when it's sort of 
nakedness of well kind of any female character but especially a younger female character like this is you know like is it warranted by the narrative you know is it adding something to our understanding of the character and is it additive to the narrative or is it cheesecake right and I would argue that this is additive as well I think that emphasis on her vulnerability and sort of what she's experiencing there and even just the naturalisticness of how she's dressed in the train car is like almost identifiable I mean that's yeah. a way that I would sleep or relax like in my kind of because they're not sexy underwear either right <laughs> they're like you know like Hanes full coverage underwear right with the cat's laughing sweater so yeah I didn't really have a problem with this scene but I was curious to kind of have us discuss some of the issues that this kind of scene sort of oftentimes raises but I think that's sort of yeah I don't know I agree with everything that was said I think it's additive I don't like the Wolverine commenting on it thing which I find super creepy I wonder okay so it's creepy can we talk about that? It is creepy, and I'm fine with it. Okay, so Wolvie, Wolvie being different than Wolverine, you, you, right, you alluded right. to this yes, a little bit earlier. Yeah. We, we need to talk about X-Babies a little bit, because this is their second real appearance at this point, and they have a weird history that goes sort of beyond this and after this. But the first X-Babies were just shrunken down X-Men, so they had all the X-Men memories, but infantile personalities. The new X-Babies are Mojo Constant that are built to think of themselves as the real X-Men, even though they're not. So they're impetuous like babies, but not. And I find, I love Lil Wolvie. I think Wolvie is great here and forever because he is the unfiltered nature of what the, he's the parody of what, you know, makes Wolverine the cool dude like that incels love. <laughs> But taken to the, of course he behaves like this. He's four. Yeah. So, it works for me. I don't know. It just always, it's always worked for me. I think that actually is the thing that makes it hard. It, it's like really, we're getting at a really important point here, which is to me, why it's always hard to read comics as a woman. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Because, yeah. you know, you're filtering through decades of of representations yeah. and then you find yourself kind of trying to parse through a set of images. And it's interesting because on the one hand, this was exactly how I would have dressed then. And <laughs> I'm serious. I'm just like being, you know, I mean, to me, I think maybe I'm over identifying with this character, which is really bad, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, but also the way that she's drawn truly isn't not just sexualized. It's actually not very good in some some respects, like her legs are weird you know and it's almost like he's going out of his way to not but but then you could argue yeah well he could have added another foot of nightgown and we wouldn't be having this conversation mm -hmm. and he could have they could have pushed out that comment by Wolvie and we wouldn't be having this conversation so I think that that there's always going to be a legitimate concern about drawings like this and I think totally I can see how many readers are going to say this is really problematic to me I kept thinking to myself okay given the genre <laughs> given the time period given the subject Subject. And also, I didn't realize she was that young. I, I I knew she was a teen, but I thought she was like probably 18, 19, something like that. I, I didn't have the, the, the backstory, and I'm sorry about that. But to me, it, it's like I can have that opinion, but totally understand how other people could look at this and say, hey, this is really a problem. And I think that's just part of reading comics, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, for me, too, it's like with Kitty Pride, I'm just always like at attention for we've talked about the various gazes sort of bound up in Kitty Pride before. There are queer gazes bound up in her, but there is definitely a certain kind of male gaze bound up in this character as well in terms of the girl next door who is oftentimes ultra sexualized regardless of her age. Although she's a character that is not ultra sexualized to the same degree because of her age, it's still always I mean, you know, we talked in issue number two about the complications of the war 
werewolf scene where she's clawing her way out of the werewolf and sticky and wet and everything and how it wasn't ultra sexualized and yet Mav as you were saying Alan Davis draws everybody so gorgeous yeah. that yeah. it's there it's there regardless right he's almost incapable of not doing that I I don't want to I don't want to give re- Alan yeah, I don't Davis a pass by that, saying yeah. he's no, I mean, just even now, I don't want to give Alan Davis a pass by saying, oh, well, he's so good an artist that he can't help but make everybody look good. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's so a is, choice. So yeah. is, I mean, like, so is Art Adams. Art yeah. Adams is, one to this day, one of my favorite artists. And again, I'm not going to pretend I'm, you know, not, I encountered him as a teenage boy. So yeah, part of that is the impression he has on me as being one of my favorite cheesecake artists. But he has made clear choices here to desexualize her as a statement. And I think that's what really makes it work obviously she still looks good because he's a good artist but he has given the awkwardness uh Gwen said her her legs are you know long Katie has big ears you know there's reasons that that she has body image issues that wouldn't bother a real person but I mean bother us about a real person but I see the awkwardness that she feels and the fact that Wolvie in particular can I mean you commented on the first one where he's like a stupid skirt the the one that really works for me is later when he's doing the I see London, I see France. This is just, you know, he's four. He's a four-year-old and four-year-olds suck. All of them do, right? <laughs> if, you have, if you have children, four-year-olds are jerks. They're little jerks, but he's a, but he's four. What are you going to do? And he's a four-year-old with the mentality of Wolverine. So of course he's making these comments. To me, that becomes a commentary on the sexualization of Kitty Pride. But like you said, it, uh, Andrew said very early on, this is participating while trying to critique because how can it not right so yeah we could have made we could have evaded the entire issue by just having her wear a nightgown instead of having her wear a sweater to sleep in but then we you know we can evade anything if if we're writing it we can evade any problem and then we don't have a story well let's get talking about the function of the x-babies then in terms of sort of them occupying this very weird position of kind of being the x-men and kind of not and sort of functioning in a position of critique because of their kind of interstitial status because the other moment that really creeped me out is when they're on the bus and Kitty is getting like attracted to Lil Longshot. No, that one. Yeah. Yes, there's both. The one for me is when she when she sort of gives goo goo eyes to to baby Peter. Yeah, both of those. (laughs) I get it, but. (laughs) Yeah, but like, I mean, maybe that gets us at sort of talking about what the ex-babies are, right? Because they're not really children. They're not really the X-Men. There's something else. And I want to talk so sort of more broadly too if we're going to sort of academicize this a little bit because I really want to like go serious on this super silly comic that's like how we're going to do this episode but but you know in terms of where they fit in kind of that archetype of like the naughty child right which has a long long history in comics of course going all the way back to some of the original comic strips and you know various other interpretations over the years like both male characters and female characters and racialized characters this is a very common archetype so I was curious about where the ex-babies kind of fit within that history and maybe i'll ask gwen first and then get us to kind of sort of expand on some of the self-reflexivity of these characters in the specific place in the x-men franchise but did you see these characters sort of fitting in with that archetype of the naughty child or are they kind of is that not maybe the best way to approach these characters what did you think gwen well you know the assumptions that a culture holds about childhood can change over time and i would say that you know the naughty child in transatlantic culture of the 17th and 18th Century. That was a serious, serious figure at that time because the idea was, you know, especially among Puritans and in, in the United States, the idea was 
children were born with sin, they needed to repent. And so the naughty child in children's texts was meant truly and seriously to caution children and to to get them to do certain things so that they would be saved. So we have to sort of think about where that figure originates, because by the time you get into the, the middle to latter part of the 19th century, there's an element of mischief that comes into play once that figure, once that religious imperative starts to, to fade a bit. I would say that that what these characters remind me the most of are a disruptive force. In some ways, they're, they're not even like children. It's like the Mardi Gras or something. They're, they've dressed up and they're just going to like create chaos wherever they go. And so while I do see that kind of naughtiness in their four-year-olds, there's a way in which they never feel like children to me. And yeah. I don't know if you've had that experience either, but to me, they feel more like this kind of mirror that's being held up to the comics industry and really kind of the the things that they say, especially at the end about sort of owning the terms of their work reminds me almost more of what Henson Tribunella, who are Carrie Henson, Eric Tribunella wrote a book called Reading Children's Literature that's really excellent. And they talk about these models of childhood and how they've changed over time. And the model that I'm thinking of really is the working child, which came into being, especially when um, during the industrial age, when initially children were viewed as means of families making money that shift from agrarian economy to the work economy put kids in into a situation where they were often expected to be major breadwinners in the family and many 19th century american texts for instance feature young people whose parents are incapable of supporting the family and so it's the kids who are basically you know made to go out and get newspaper routes and do all sorts of other things to bring money in. So it's that idea kind of that this is a weird mix of, yeah, the naughty child is in here, but so is the resilient sort of worker child, the miniature adult. You know, there's some interesting sort of ways in which all these models are at play while simultaneously these characters don't always feel like children. So it's this really weird mix that, so when you were asking me what I thought about this comic, I mean, I would, especially towards the end, I'm just like, good Lord, what are these characters doing here? <laughs> And I, I, I mean, I mean, to me, to me, it really felt like a lot of different sort of as models of childhood were were co- coalescing here, but the the result of this was just chaos. <laughs> That's fair enough. I mean, maybe how we can start to approach it is to kind of situate how some of this self-reflexivity is working within the context of the X-Men franchise and the Marvel Universe, right? We have the House of Stan and Jack. We have the Ricochet Rita character who many of our listeners will probably already know is modeled after Anne Nascenti and was created by Anne Nascenti as somewhat of a self-insert character. So Anne Nascenti, X-Men writer, longtime X-Men editor, becomes the caretaker of the X-Babies. There's something interesting going on there for sure, right? Ricochet Rita is literally a Mary Sue. Yeah, she is. She is is very specifically an actual Mary Sue. And she's awesome. She is. Yes, she is awesome. <laughs> yeah, so she gets introduced in, in the Longshot Mini by Nascenti and also penciled by Art Adams as this kind of, yeah, self-insert character. And then again, obvious symbolism of longtime editor, long-suffering editor and Nascenti becoming the caretaker <laughs> of the ex-babies, but also but also doing that in a very um, way that emphasizes her agency, right? Like at the end of the Longshot series, she chooses to go with Longshot and fight the good fight and against 
Mojo and we see her here, you know, never being humbled by Mojo despite everything that he puts her through. And although they try to save her at the end, she chooses to jump back into the portal to protect the ex-babies, but also in a quest for glory, right? I mean, she has that a little bit of that selfish motive too, which I think is important in terms of making that a more complex character. But I want to come to Andrew in terms of situating this within Claremont, within X-Men. Like, what are the ex-babies doing for us as these figures of critique, do you think? Or, Or are they figures of critique? Or are they just like figures of chaos and fun? Like, if there's a critique here, what is it? I think it's sort of a self-aware critique of Claremont in terms of um, him being aware that he's working in a medium that is perceived as juvenile. Uh, and this is sort of his way. Uh, I mean, it's almost carnivalesque, right? Uh, of taking that juvenile. I, I was thinking of that as, as Glenn was talking. Yeah, I was like, it's like a carnival. Like it's almost like dressing up as a child to do something, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing I can point to is like kind of a, an example of the complexity of the characters. Um, they each get picked off one by one by the agent, right? But the way they get picked off is character consistent. So H- Havoc goes for fame. Um, Psylocke goes because she's trying to act too much like an adult, which is what happened to her captain britain kind of uh rogue and dazzler have a desperate need to be loved which is how the agent gets them colossus of course is a martyr and wolverine can't resist violence like that's that's character study in these like silly little moments so so yeah no i I think he's totally kind of trying to comment on how people perceive his x-men and having some fun with that uh whilst producing again a meditation on grief and an elaborate kind of commentary on um sort of the mechanics of being a marvel comic book writer at the time well mav you came at the beginning with sort of talking about the way that this is situated you know in pop culture discourse of the day like how did you read this as as a form of critique for me a lot of what andrew's saying a lot of what's gwen gwen is saying but also just there is in excalibur in general in this issue in particular claremont has done a lot of meta awareness of the industry right like he you know he has he is not shy about inserting himself into the narrative literally which he does in this in this issue you know he physically appears and with some sort of wink and nod it's not clear that kitty doesn't know that he's the guy <laughs> who's writing her adventures which is odd and you know proto deadpoolish i get but not to the level that that we've talked about she hawk and my love for that on this podcast before she's not aware to the level that she hawk is where she can let this affect the narrative directly but she does seem to know who he is and like that is an awareness of it's a commentary on the comic book genre particularly claremont's place in it the fact that rita exists at all is a commentary on the comic book genre if you've read the long shot series it's really it's very much a mojo exists as a look we are doing this about ratings this is a a comment about what it means to be an adventurer or superhero. And then we paste on top of that the X-Babies, which is really... Mojo is a cynical character who just wants... Not even money. He just wants ratings. It's just mm-hmm. about how many eyeballs can I get on this by keying into the pop culture of the day to the point that you know he's doing the most cynical thing ever of I'm making a baby version of my most popular characters. And I, I wasn't kidding. These were all over the place in 19. 19- Uh, Muppets Take Manhattan introduces the Muppet Babies in 1984 and then there's a cartoon version of that then there's Flintstones there's like just there are baby versions of, of characters popping up 
all over the place. It was annoying and disgusting and silly. <laughs> and this one works because it's not what made the Muppet Babies work is that they were honest, right? They were honest and they were they they weren't cynical. They were endearing. They were proto versions of those characters in the same way that, that you were talking about how Colossus and Wolverine are here, right? Even the Muppet Babies theme song, you have um, Kermit, I like adventure, Piggy, I love romance, Ozzy, I love great jokes, Animal Dance. Like it's just it's literally just the proto aspects of their characters distilled into a baby form and so it so it can comment on that that's what they're trying to do here so this works for me because they're not children they really are a simplified you know let us dwell on the nature of what it means to be the x-men characters and use that lens there so i don't think of them as babies i don't think of them as kids i think of them as a distilled essence yeah. can i ask you guys a question of course you as you've been talking i've been thinking a lot about this there's the part where kitty is talking about how um you know they have the the, the kids have gone through the back through the portal and she says you should always be careful what you wish for because you may just get it right in the teeth i'm sure mojo's got the kids his problem now is He's got the kids. And she says, you know, talk about the fate you deserve. And I'm thinking about the cultural moment that this is taking place. This is just, just at the point where U.S. childhood is going to start to change profoundly with kids having all these sudden, suddenly being brought indoors, uh, brought into activities, having their lives scheduled. This is about five years before the Spice Girls. It's about, you know, I mean, you start to look at the way that children in our, in the U.S and to a certain extent in Britain too, start to have these very regimented lives in which they are constantly being supervised by adults. And there's almost a derisory <laughs> attitude towards children here, which is about to be completely flipped in the culture in a way, although not entirely, but it's the idea, okay, now children need to have these we need to protect children. Children need to have these. I mean, I grew up in the generation where it was like, yeah, go out and play, see you in a couple hours, you. you know, yeah. and, and whatever. Watch and come in when it's dark. And where like 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 people made fun of kids in popular culture. That was a major trope of like Johnny Carson's show and these other shows. Comedians made tons of of like, you know, references to children in a derisory way. And then suddenly there's a shift. And it's just kind of interesting this happening in this moment. I don't know. It just felt kind of weird to me. Yeah, I mean it would be interesting to kind of map the other appearances of the X babies. I mean, they're pretty similar in like all their appearances over the years, but I am wondering now like whether some of the later appearances sort of go harder on the cuteness and the innocence than kind of the more active self-reflexivity than we get here. They get more ridiculous as time goes on. Yeah. Um, this is, I think this is their third appearance. It's the second of the canonical. Yeah. It's the second appearance, I think, of the physical where not the original X-Men and yeah. X-Babies. Yeah. And it's their throat overall. They've been published as recently as the last couple of years in, you know, you know, one-offs. And I think the little Wolvie that appears in Exiles is canonically this Wolvie, too. I, I haven't read that one. As the writers try to make them more self-aware, they lean harder and harder into the whole ridiculousness of them in a way which doesn't quite work for me as well. Well, I mean, I, I almost want to get back to, there's a couple of questions that I want to get back to. I mean, getting back to the usefulness of, even if they're not really children, like the use of like a carnivalesque child disguise at the very least to kind of mobilize some of the insights or critiques or, you know, Mav, you called it revealing the truth of the thing, you know, like that mouth of babes kind of idea, right? And then I'm also thinking about creator agency and, you know, this being a commentary on that and especially the place that Claremont was at with the franchise at this point where he's 
he's not going to be with it that much longer and sort of the push and pull of his agency there so those are the two questions I kept thinking about but maybe let's start with that first one I mean like it's sort of a basic question that I think we've talked around a lot but like why babies you know like I mean we could have done this with a gender swap version of the team we could have done this with the dinosaur version of the team we could have done this with other AU characters there's like that cat rock star Excalibur we're going to get in a few issues there's like various gender swapped ones but like I mean why babies you know like how does it relate to those questions of sort of agency you know either having to do with the characters themselves or those self-reflexive questions about agency having to do with the creators and their babies I think it's hyperbolically cynical right I I think exactly as Mav has been saying this is something that was going on in our culture at the time Uh, and by just you know doing something kind of lazy I I think it's a nice way to signal the critique lazy yeah I I, I don't I don't disagree with that it's funny but I'm trying to remember the storyline where it's X-Men annual 12 what, the original X Babies one, or like well, the, the original X Babies is, is, 10, is ten, I believe. Yeah, but then, and I believe twelve yeah. is the original fake X Babies. Yeah, it's twelve. And I, if if I remember correctly, it's been a while, and I didn't reread it for this episode. So if I remember correctly, the joke is that Mojo just wants ratings, and he's tried other stuff, like he's yeah. tried funny animal versions. He's yeah. tried, and this is the one that sticks. Like I think that's a it, that might be a later one too, but I think that's the the annual twelve story, and where that's the the idea of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he, yeah, he tries he tries gender flipped x-men yeah, first <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and then and then it's like oh well people you know the ratings are up the q ratings up on babies so babies it is because it really is that cynical so like in story i think there's a, a direct commentary on on where culture is going you know how we view childhood because i think Gwen's right i think there is a change in what not even youth youth is usually refers to like teenhood of to what childhood is changes in the 90s from where it had been in the 80s from where it had been in the 70s so i think we're on the cusp of that but also i think that in a book that is being programmed towards young people who the world is increasingly trying to treat them like children where they are constantly trying to battle to be taken being taken seriously as an adult like i said i I was 15 when this came out i was a kid in my mind now but very much an adult in my mind at the time that (laughs) at the time that it came out it's a it's it's the thing where we're always talking about where i'm always very careful about how i talk about kitty because i always have to think of this of you know when andrew's like well this this is creepy it was like yeah but like would i have found creepy at 14 like you know if i'm gonna put myself in that headspace and i think that it's very important that we're looking at a story where these are this is a version of x-men that kitty can see herself as more mature than and needing to protect in a way that they have that the essence of her character has always been you know even even outside of classes classes is her boyfriend I'll, I'll escape that one storm wolverine nightcrawler in particular these are my protectors these are my older siblings they've taken care of me since i was a child which you know two years ago for her but now i'm returning the favor i think that story is important and i think that only works with their children is that really getting at sentimentality in childhood too because there are ways in which sentimentality can work well and convincingly and there's ways in which it can be saccharine and make you want to hurl (laughs) and (laughs) 
you know, and, and like we, I had talked about the kitty part of the text being sort of the quiet center. It's also like, I think we've talked about an evocation of the way that young people work through grief and difficult issues. And you could, you could view that very positively, but there's sort of a saccharine way in which children were being portrayed in the larger culture at this point. Think of Punky Brewster. Think of what's the one with the, the two young men who had such terrible fates after all these children. That's the other thing. All these child actors I'm thinking of are dead or have had like terrible oh, lives. Yeah. But it was like the, the sort of height of that kind of super sentimentalized child. And again, just for profit, you know, and it's interesting, you know, to think about how much of that is at work here in the way that these babies are being put forward, especially towards the end. I'm still interested in that creator question, though, right? Like, I mean, where did the ex-babies fit within this being a story of Claremont talking about his agency as a creator? Does that make sense as a question? Because, I mean, we have the ca- we have the cameos from, like, the owner of Forbidden Planet and Claremont in this comic, and we have Kitty's recognition of Claremont on some level, which we brought up. I mean, we've talked about Kitty as a, as and a Cats laughing. Yeah, and cats. I mean, cats laughing. Cats laughing are is a rock group, a real life rock group that consists of real life fiction writers that Claremont admires. Yeah. That's the only reason Kitty's into them. Yeah, I know exactly, right? And I mean, I'm curious. Like we've talked about Kitty as a as a reader surrogate. Like, to what extent is she being a creator surrogate in this story? Right? I mean, we've got Rita being Anna Senti to a certain degree, but to what extent is sort of Claremont's agency sort of being filtered through Kitty in this story? Like, is that a sensible question to ask? I think it's a sensible question i'm not sure i see it to be perfectly honest like like i I hadn't considered it for me like like i think this is a really good example of um kitty serving as a very strong universal protagonist i have no problem identifying with her whatsoever despite any age gender or culture gaps i hadn't really thought of her as sort of through like like her narrative agency offering commentary on sort of claremont's station at this point in his life so you don't see the ex-babies like in any types of conversation you know between you know where he is in the ex-franchise at this point like did he have any sense that his time in the franchise was coming to an end or was he expecting no, he to be was, there forever he was absolutely blindsided unfortunately so you wouldn't read that commentary into this at all that's just something i'm imprinting on it knowing what happens right <laughs> maybe i don't i don't know um I, I think you can make a case it's interesting but there's always that push and pull right i mean that like trauma of being the work for hire creator you know these characters that become his characters that become his babies and he's never going to be fully in control of those and i just think about the inherent chaos of the ex-babies as being in conversation with that on some yeah. level. No, no, I see the argument. And this is maybe just me reading into it because this is not something that, that's, you know, been directly written about. But but Claremont's relationship to his characters has always been kind of reverent. He views them as companions. He views them as pieces of himself. I don't think he sees himself in a kind of patriarchal relationship to them. But that's just my sense. I wonder if it's just thinking about what, what Anna was just saying about um whether or not he knows his time is over. He clearly doesn't. Just given where the storylines in not only Excalibur, but particularly where the storylines in X-Men yeah. were at the moment that he sort of loses it. He clearly had no, I mean, I don't, we don't know obviously, but like just it, this does not read like someone who's trying to wrap things up <laughs> or tried to go somewhere else. There are things that are just lost in nigh in mid sentence when he, when he's done. <laughs> so it, it's, it's bizarre, but I do think that doing a one-off even sort is drawn, which is much more serious than this, but the stories in the annuals, the stories in, 
doing one-offs like Mojo Mayhem. He's been doing this at this point, probably 15 years. Uh, yeah, 14, 15 years. Yeah, at this point. And I think he's trying to have fun in a lot of ways that, you know, the self-referential thing that Excalibur allows him, I just think is it's, I'm going to have a little bit of a party here, particularly where we're going in Cross Time Caper. You know, there's going to be a lot of, <laughs> this is cute. Look, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's it's me and John Byrne. You know, it's it's me and Andesenti. Like, I, I think that there is a little bit of, I'm just enjoying myself because he's got to refresh it and make it new for himself, particularly given there's, you know, I just talked about what this book is going to be. The book that X-Men becomes over the next year of real time for Claremont is super dark. And he's got to know that's coming. It's really, really dark. He's killing off his darlings in a lot of ways. I was thinking about the baby X-Men as that, actually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like like about 20 minutes ago, but of course I didn't give voice to it. But since you said it. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, interested in like how they mobilize that, you know, because even the role that Kitty gets put in here where she's sort of their guardian, but sort of not their guardian and how that's sort of like the comic book creator who's doing work for higher work where she's babysitting. Yeah, she's babysitting. Right. And like, that's a phrase that we do bring up in terms of work for higher creators that they're babysitting these properties. Right. You know, it's, it's an idea that's property of the company and they don't ever completely own that thing. And the fact that the ex babies are always chaotic and always outside of their caretaker's control. I just see that as an interesting commentary on sort of that strange role of a creator in that space. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, Uh, I totally buy that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I found something intelligent to say about this book. Oh, please. (laughs) But any any kind of we've kind of gone for a little while now, but like any sort of final thoughts, like just sort of random things that we want to bring up sort of moments or dynamics that we didn't sort of get a chance to talk about. I think maybe I'd, I'd like to reflect that again, because I think the important question for a lot of us is, um, Anna, would you call Mojo Mayhem a great Excalibur story? <laughs> I put <laughs> it on my comics xf primer as a good excalibur story and so you know like i did change great to good there i i I, I put it in the bronze category it was at the bottom of my list but uh, i mean but it's 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 i i i will say this i think next to sword is drawn it's my favorite of the excalibur specials like is that is that good oh that's fair yeah but i mean that's that's, there's not a lot of competition there but i have appreciated it a lot a lot a lot more like in terms of something like claremont red thread which we were like all making us cry earlier i mean how can you not love this story when someone's giving you such a beautiful interpretation (laughs) i have i have a new appreciation of it versus the first time i read this where to be honest I was reading it for Nightcrawler, right? I'm reading the Nightcrawler scenes and kind of flipping over and then now he's not in it until the end. And then we have the call back to Uncanny 204, but nothing happens about it because yeah. it's just in thought bubbles. And I'm like, ah, so I mean, that's where I'm coming at it, right? <laughs> so I think that I think that we're being weird about it. So in your primer, <laughs> you listed it. Well, so here's where, here's where I'm at with it. I opened this episode with, you know, with raving about it. And I, and I do love it. I cannot be fair about this. In, <laughs> in real life, when I'm... You know, professionally, if I'm teaching one of my students to review a work, I always tell them, you know, you have to write the, your your term paper as though I am not reading this as your professor. I am reading this as a random reader who this might be their first experience with uh, insert Tolstoy, you know, whatever, whatever we've read. Right. This cannot be your first experience with Excalibur. Mojo Mayhem. I'm going to be just set aside my personal feelings. It's not a well-written story. You'd be lost. I don't understand. What? Like nothing makes sense. It's just chaos. 
chaos. It is the best story because if you just let go, let go of all your preconceived notions about how narrative is supposed to work and about how things are supposed to make sense, it's delightful and it's lovely and it's the essence of everything that I love about Excalibur. But I understand how you'd be turned off if you were looking for it to make sense. You know, if you were looking for consistency or logic or who the hell are these people even, everything about it is weird. But I'm not approaching va- Excalibur from a vacuum. I'm not approaching the X-Men from a vacuum. These are characters that, you know, in my head, there's 60 something years of history of all these people floating around. So this makes it great because I, I'm not going in blind. And I, and I don't think anybody, I always say that, you know, I always like to repeat Jim Shooter's theory that every, you know, every comic book is somebody's first comic book. So you've got to yell your name on every page, right? <laughs> that's how that's how he wrote comics in the 80s. This can't be your first comic. Like Mojo Mayhem, just it, it's not for that. It can't even really be your first Excalibur comic, though. I guess it was Gwen. Well, except that I was, okay, to be fair, though, I grew up reading Mad Magazine. And there's a lot that's going on here that's very, very, like I could code back to to Mad and really kind of see some of the same sensibility. And so I was able to to make some sense of it. But you're right. I mean, if you, if I'd only read this and Anna hadn't sent me a lot of other stuff, and if I had never read the X-Men before, okay, yeah, I would have been totally at sea. But but for me, I just used my Mad Magazine self-reflexive humor, the way that they handle like, you know, um, beloved hallowed cultural ideals. And there was a lot of that (laughs) going on here. And so it it wasn't that difficult, but I'm also, you know, a 57-year-old academic who's still reading a comics. I'm not like a kid back in, if this were the first thing I'd read in 1989, I'd be like, I wouldn't have gotten past the third or fourth page. Mm -hmm. And you'd never read a comic book again. I mean, it it would be, but I don't think they all have to be that. Like, I think I like repeating Shooter's quote because I think it's interesting and it tells a lot about where particularly Marvel, but DC as well, to a lesser extent, were in the mid 80s because because Jim Shooter really did fundamentally believe that. Mm -hmm. But it's not true, right? Like, I I don't do this with any other type of literature, right? Like, there are starter Shakespeare plays and then there are advanced Shakespeare plays. Mm. There's, well, there's not really a starter James Joyce. But, you know, like there, (laughs) but like, but you see, but there's starter literature and then there's more advanced literature, right? Like, I don't, if I want somebody to become an English major, if I'm trying to, if I've got a particularly promising writer in like my freshman comp class and I'm like trying to like, yeah, you want to change majors and, you know, join the dark side and have a useless <laughs> career like the rest of us, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't go, all right, you've written a good freshman essay. Now let's read Ulysses because that would be scary, right? And I don't think Mojo Mayhem needs to be the starter text. I I think it's okay for it to be the quirky, weird text that's a special edition that, you know, you sit there and you go, well, what do we get out of this? You know, not everything is like laid out for you. Sometimes it's just fun to like, and we have a whole podcast devoted to just breaking these things apart. And what did we get of this? And I I think it makes for a more interesting conversation than Sword is Drawn, which I think is a brilliant starter text. Yeah. Even though Sword is Drawn, you know, we talked about on that first episode, we talked about the history that we had with the Munich Massacre or with uh, the Nightcrawler series. Or, you, know, you know, we talked about backstory, but it wasn't necessary to read Sword is Drawn. And I think it is very necessary to read this. Andrew, you talked about Kitty's grief. I think you need to understand what happened to the X-Men for Mojo Mayhem to make sense. And she never tells you. It's not on the page in this book at all. There is no point where it says, okay, they died in Dallas. All you know is that she missed them and you have to figure it out. And it certainly doesn't tell you that they're alive and being bastards oh, by not telling you. And her. it certainly doesn't tell you that Ileana is not technically dead, but just de-aged to her child self, so isn't the version of her that Kitty knew. I mean, that yeah, would be a lot to explain. 
fine. Right. So all of that, this, all of that matters in this text. And I think this makes it a more, I don't want to say better. It's a more complex text to read than Sword is Drawn. But like, since I have all that knowledge, I can enjoy it. I'm thinking about my other thing that I was just going to point out. I think I can even relate to that just in terms of where this is situated in comics publishing. And I mean, we've talked about some of this history before the rise of the direct market, sort of the rise of more complex storytelling, the readers getting a little bit older that happens throughout the 1980s into the 1990s. And even the development of the special edition is related to sort of superhero comic book publishers sort of modeling their publishing models after albums and doing graphic novels, right? And Nightcrawler is wearing a flaming carrot comic t-shirt <laughs> at the beginning of this comic. And so that's like a little shout out to shoot the independent comic scene. And not explained at all, but not you know. Explained. But this comic's not on newsstands, right? When I bought this, I was working in the store already by the time this came out. So I worked in a comic book store. I was working in the comic book store already. I knew who Flaming Carrot was. I knew who Cat's Laughing is. Cat's Laughing is not explained once again. And I know who they are. And if you don't, I guess it's just a quirky band that Kitty likes and that's fine. But if you do, that increases your enjoyment of the story. Andrew, any final thoughts, things that you wanted to bring up that we didn't get to? It's perfect and all your critiques are invalid. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, Andrew. Fair enough. I don't know. I think Anna should be feeling like Kitty right now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any do you have any any final thoughts to to conclude this discussion, Gwen? Anything that you want to touch on that we didn't get to? No, just that, you know, I think I enjoyed it more than I thought I would and more than you thought I would. And so I think that's a (laughs) win. I think that's an excellent point to end on. I can't be a King Archimedes. I don't know anything about ruling a country. I told you to leave the thing in the stone bar. I'll I'll run away. That's what I'll do. Mm. They'll just have to get somebody else. Better take the side door, Wart. Out the side door. So, Gwen, anything that you would like to plug for our listeners? Where can people find you if you want them to find you? And what's some of their work that they can check, of yours that they can check out? Because we will link it in our show notes as well, but give it a shout out on Mike as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm on Twitter at, at GATARBOX. And um, I would encourage people who are interested in children's comics to pick up my book from Bloomsbury, um, Children. It's, it's it very creatively titled. It is exactly what it is, Children's <laughs> and Young Adult Comics. But I went with Bloomsbury in part because they're they they really subsidize their academic text so they're super affordable i think the kindle edition of my book is 14 dollars, and it's the kind of book where it's useful if you're teaching comics but also if you're sharing comics with kids it gives you kind of an insight and a way to talk to kids about comics as well although that's not the primary audience but the primary audience are undergrads um but uh yeah you can get that anywhere wonderful books are sold And it is an excellent book. I have read it. And I would second that recommendation that it's a great sort of primer for the topic, but that also gets into complexities that will be of interest to experienced comic scholars as well. So I think you're hitting a lot of bases with that book. And I think anybody that enjoyed our conversation about children's comics would definitely find it a great book to check out. So thank you so much for joining us, Gwen. I'm just thrilled to have your insights on this episode. I had so much fun. I want to hang out with you guys more. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) This was a blast. we'd We'd be happy to have you every week. 
week. It was great talking to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Next, in one week's time, we'll be back on the crazy train with Excalibur number 15, TechNet Impossible Missions, which, as the title suggests, spotlights the TechNet in a surprisingly serious story. Also, Kurt becomes a saloon hostess and Kitty becomes a vampire. We've got another super smart guest lined up to help us navigate those developments. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another very self-aware conversation. Thank you, Gwen, for lending us your expertise. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. <laughs> of course I did. Of course I did. Oh.